Good evening and welcome to our program for the Culinary Historians of Chicago tonight. And again, welcome all the Highland Park people. And uh, this is our 30th year of existence, the Culinary Historians of Chicago. And, uh, and we're taking a, a big bite out of history with all our years here. So tonight's program um, is with uh, Kitty Morse. I'll tell you a little bit about Kitty. Uh, Kitty has talked to our group before in Chicago when she's been on tour over the years. And um, she's one of the most, she's a highly, highly eminent uh, food author, an award-winning cookbook author. I'll tell you about her. Kitty was born in Casablanca, Morocco, of a French mother and British father. And she emigrated to the United States in 1964. She began catering Moroccan parties just down, just down the lake while she was studying for a master's degree at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And Milwaukee's so close, I've, I've maybe offended people in Milwaukee by calling it a suburb of Chicago, but it's only a 90-minute train ride. But anyway, catering and giving Moroccan cooking classes eventually led to Kitty writing 10 cookbooks, including the award-winning Cooking at the Casbah, Recipes from My Moroccan Kitchen, uh, the Vegetarian Table, North Africa, and the Scent of Orange Blossoms, Sephardic Cuisine from Morocco. Her first memoir, Mint Tea and Minarets, A Banquet of Moroccan Memories, uh, was a recipient of a Gourmet World Cookbook Award. Kitty, Kitty's career as a food writer, cooking instructor, and tour leader spans more than three decades. She's contributed articles in French and English to leading publications in the U.S. and abroad and has been a guest on local and national television stations. Currently, Kitty is a staff writer for Wine, WineAndDineTravel.com, which is an award-winning online travel magazine. Kitty has lectured around the country on Moroccan cuisine and culture, and one of the highlights of her career was cooking alongside Julia Child to benefit the International Association of Culinary Professionals. Kitty lives in Vista, California, and that's where she's speaking to us tonight from. Um, and let's see, I just wanna see before Kitty speaks, um, I just wanna see, um, there was one person who was supposed to join us tonight and I can't see. She's here, she's oh, here. Okay. I know who it is. Okay, um, could, could the person who knows who I'm talking about, could you unmute yourself? Uh, this person who's going to talk to Kitty right now is... Okay. Hi, Scott. This Hi. is Tony Allegra. Yes, and Tony, I just want to tell who Tony is. Tony is the mother, Teresa, of food writers. She's coached <laughs> and prov provided conferences for food writers. She's revered among food writers. She's a former food editor. And Tony is speaking from her home in California, St. Helena, um, and from her treehouse. Tony gave Kitty her first writing break. So Tony, this is like, this is your life, the old TV show. And from your past, uh, Tony, could you just tell us briefly about Tony and your connection with her? What a treat to talk about Kitty. Um, yes, I can say that I was a new food editor at the San Diego Tribune. And this was in about 1983 maybe 82. And 
basically in those days, the food section was about 48 pages each week. And I was not allowed to include freelancers. I took stories from the, the wire and I also added a few stories, of course, on myself and a column. But one day, this petite lady came in and somehow made it through the, to the newsroom. I will <laughs> never know how. And she found her way to my desk. And she said, hello, Tony, my name is Kitty Moss. And she was just so open and sweet. And she was pitching herself as a writer. She wanted to do a story for the newspaper. And it was just so extraordinary how she started telling the stories of Casablanca, that she had photos. And I thought, oh my God, this is a dream. This sounds like a real writer because you can tell a writer through the voice of a person speaking. Uh, so I had to ask the editor of the paper, Neil Morgan was his name, whether I would be allowed to have a freelancer write for the food section. And uh, he said, well, yes, but you know, the, the rate would have to be about $25 for the entire story and all the photos. And I went back and called Kitty and, or talked to her right then. And I said, Kitty, I'm so sorry. It's gonna be $25 for everything. And she said, oh, Tony, that is wonderful. Of course I will do it. And so I ran her story front page of the food section and jumped to a couple of other pages with all the photos. And from then on, Kitty has just been a bright light in not only my life, but in the lives of all the people who read her books, who meet her. And truly, she has, is now with this new book, bringing such history to the Alsace-Lorraine area and to her family. So. Kitty, I can't see you right now, but I know you're there and I welcome you and I really honor you. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Uh, and it's, it's so good seeing you again. Tony's been one of the biggest mentors in my life. Tony's the one who introduced me and so many other people directly to Julia Child. So anyway, I could do a whole program about Tony. Uh, but, yes. Uh, <laughs> And uh, so anyway, uh, Kitty, this is your life, Kitty Morse. I will say this one thing about Kitty's book. It's her certainly her most, probably her most personal book about her family, the Holocaust, and the, the photo, food photos are all by her husband, Dr. Owen Morse, who tragically uh, passed away last month. So this is a tribute to, ever, to everyone near and dear to Kitty. So Kitty, come on down and take the stage. Oh, my goodness. Tony, first of all, I blame you for everything. <laughs> Thank you, Tony. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be back in the Midwest, even if it's only virtually and a treat to be back with the culinary historians of Chicago, um, who treated me like a queen when I was there with my Moroccan story. But this one is, this story fell into my lap, I'm sorry. actually just about three years ago today that I was surfing the internet uh, and I fell upon C-SPAN 
And it happened to be the uh, 70th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. I mean, I, um, my, my family is secular. I did not grow up in the, in the Jewish faith or the environment or many of the traditions. Some of them we, we kept Sephardic in Morocco. <laughs> and I fell upon this gentleman, uh, Mr. Marian Tursky, who ended up with a, what he called the 11th commandment. He said, we should have an 11th commandment. It should be, we cannot remain indifferent. And it resonated so much with me because a couple of weeks before, I mean, really, I, the suitcase <laughs> found in my mother's closet after she died. And uh, I had kept it in my own closet for about three years because I knew, I, I just knew there was something in it I really didn't want to know. I didn't want to find out. It was, I knew it was painful. My mother treasured this. She said there were documents and pictures inside, I, but I had no idea what they were. And I had brought it home and put it on my shelf. And, you know, three years after my mother's death, I thought, well, I'll go and look in the suitcase and see what's in it. Well, you will find out. I was, I was, I can't even say stunned, overwhelmed, emotional. Uh, and then I just put it aside for a few weeks. And then I, after I watched Mr. Tursky, and the Holocaust, uh, he was talking at Auschwitz, where I have never been, and frankly, I have no intention of going. But he was talking in front of what was what is left of Auschwitz. Um, and I was mesmerized. So I thought, my gosh, I cannot remain indifferent. I have to do something with my book. With with no, not with my book, with the documents. And Little by little, I figured <laughs> I went to the suitcase and I opened it. And this is what I found. And this is in the book, I say, I put it on my Moroccan rug because, of course, we have such a connection with Morocco. Uh, and this is exactly what I did. And I opened the suitcase and this is what I found. And I was absolutely speechless, speechless. So the, the woman up here is my great grandmother, Blanche. And my namesake, my mother named me, uh, I'm, my real name is Kathleen Francis Blanche. And I knew that Blanche was her grandmother's name, but I really didn't have any background on Blanche. And Blanche here is about 19 years old and she dressed in the costume of an Alsacienne. Those of you who have been to France, you know the regions, uh, various regions have national costumes. Well, Alsace is so distinct. The big black bow and, and the, you know, the pretty, apron and the frilly uh, blouses, Alsace. So my great-grandmother came from Alsace, not far from Strasbourg, <clears throat> in a little town called Chalon-sur-Marne. But Chalon-sur-Marne changed names in the 2000s, and it is now known as Chalon-en-Champagne. So it is the heart of the Champagne region, um, where I have not been, but I'm headed to in May, I hope. I'm taking my mother back to her ancestors. I'm going to sprinkle her ashes in uh, As you can tell, Alsace-Lorraine 
at various times in history has been German or French, depending on who won the war, the Germans or the French. And so uh, my great grandmother went from, uh, she was born in Haganau, which at that time, she was born in Haganau, I'm sorry, not in chalon sur marne but um, it was German at the time. So she probably knew a little German, not much. She was very, very Francaise, very Francaise, very French. Her, her maiden name was Neymarck. So Blanche Neymarck, and you can tell there's a real German sound to Neymarck. Her father was a butcher in Chalon-sur-Marne. And I understand the butcher shop is no longer, it is now a pastry store in Chalon-sur-Marne, but I will find that out in May. Her grandparents were born in a little town called Bishwiller. So these are all the pictures I'm discovering in this suitcase, all these ancestors I didn't know, French and German ancestors. Chalon-sur-Marne, I found this on the internet in about 19, I think 1901 or 1902, shows the streets that my great grandparents lived on. Some of them have been destroyed. Uh, by world in World War One and then in World War Two because the couple lived through two wars. It's unbelievable. So I have documents about two wars, and uh, the big challenge was okay. This is World War One, and then this is World War Two. Let's not get confused with the battles and what was destroyed. But Chalon sur Marne, now Chalon en Champagne, is about two uh, about two hours east of Strasbourg. In the suitcase also, I found my great-grandfather's journal, handwritten journal, chronicling the advance of the Germans from April to December 1940. Uh, and he's, he's writing this in a petit carnet médical, which is one of those freebies that the doctors give or that the pharmaceutical companies give to doctors. And so there was hardly any paper. This is they were lacking paper and the writing is very, very tight. I'll show you some samples later. Blanche here, no, this is not Blanche. This is Blanche's mother with uh, Blanche and uh, one of her sisters. At home, Blanche, my grandmother, Suzanne, who ended up, she escaped the war because she lived in Morocco. She married my grandfather who was an Algerian, a French Algerian, um, um, diplomat who lived in Morocco. So this is my great-grandfather Prosper Blanche and my grandmother Suzanne living a life of, you know, bourgeois. They probably had plenty of money. He was an army doctor, twice decorated of the Légion d'honneur, and he practiced medicine during World War I. World War II, he was already aged, but World War I, he was, he was in the full heart of battles of Verdun and all the big battles of the Marne. I will tell you about later. Cousins, my grandmother and her cousins, I don't even know who they are. This is her sister, Annie. Annie who also died at Auschwitz with her mother Blanche. And these are cousins who have disappeared. I'm not sure who they are. Blanche in her prime, isn't she pretty? I love it. Now Blanche grew up, of course, during the Belle Epoque in the 1890s. Well, she was born in 1871 and grew up in the Belle Epoque, the Gilded Age, uh, which was truly the golden age of France. Uh, France was recognized as a center of art, of food, of, of culture. I mean, Escoffier dates from that time, uh, two world fairs, uh, and all the, um, the Belle Epoque activities. If you have seen the movie, 
um, midnight in Paris, you know what the Belle Epoque is because the the young woman, I forget her, her name, can say I want to live in the Belle Epoque, but look at that. The the jewels and the uh, and the handmade clothing and lace. And then Blanche as an old as a grandmother, an old with my mother, her sister. Martine, who was a professor at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee for 50 years, she was a professor of French. My aunt, very dear to me, and my great-grandfather, Prosper, and a cousin, I'm not sure who that was, and I believe this is another young cousin who died in the, in the Holocaust. Now, I was just mentioning that Prosper was an army doctor, so here he is greeting French officials uh, during World War One, you know, th these are a little bit helter-skelter because this, these are the pictures that I found and I'm sure many are missing, but uh, this is what we have here. Now, this is very interesting. <clears throat> Prosper participated in the Battle of the Marne, one of the very first battles in 1914, the Battle of the Marne, uh, when the, the Germans were pushing from the north, making their way to Paris, but the French and the British managed to hold them at bay <clears throat> and uh, they they lost, the Germans lost 350,000 and so did the French. And what happened is that they needed more military or more conscripts to go to the front line and so the government um, uh, commandeered 600 French taxis to drive the military, the young conscripts people, from Paris to the battlefields, and they paid, they repaid every taxi for it. So imagine in one of these taxis, um, four soldiers with guns sticking out of the windows and one driver driving off to war in a taxi from, pa from Paris. My great-grandfather here is seen from the back. This is the camp of Mourmelon. Mourmelon is still a military camp, very important military camp outside chalon sur marne It was opened by uh, Napoleon III. So, so Chalon and environs have always been very military. It's a bit like the base. We have a big base and you have the Navy base and uh, Naval Station and we have Camp Pendleton. I mean, it was a big, <coughs> big military operation. And he is receiving the Legion of Honor he got it twice, and this is the first time from uh, Maréchal Pétain, who at that time was a commander <coughs> of, uh, of the army before he became a political figure. My great-grandmother as a flapper, Suzanne. I knew my great-grandmother, of course, I was very close to her. She, um, she grew up in chalon sur marne and then she met my grandfather. I will tell you uh, about that union, my grandfather in Morocco. And she was a concert, she could have been a concert pianist. So she got an education in chalon sur marne and because she was so good at playing the piano, her parents paid for piano lessons in Paris with a well-known composer, Lucien Wormser. I found him on Google, actually. Um, so she commuted weekly or pronos, bi-weekly to Paris to play and to learn or to perfect her piano. Now, eventually, Suzanne married in 1921, Armand Darmon, my grandfather, whom I was very close to. And Armand was a brilliant linguist. He had gone, he was born in Algeria. His parents migrated to Morocco. 
and he went to school in Paris to the most important, well-known school, the Ecole des Langues Orientales of uh, Oriental Languages, and he was a brilliant student. Of course, growing up in Algeria with, you know, Jewish parents who could speak Arabic and Berber and Spanish and French, ah, well, he was a good linguist. And English, he spoke English. So he went to Paris, he was brilliant, and he said to these people, because it's like the, I don't know, a diplomat school in the United States, they train you and then they send you in the diplomatic corps, like the State Department, various places in the world. So when he graduated, he told his professors, he says, well, okay, I'm one of the first ones here. Uh, I want to go to the Japan. He wanted to go to Japan. And they said, are you kidding? You speak all these Arab languages, you're staying. You're going to Morocco. So he became in Morocco, a right-hand man to Maréchal Lyoté, who established the French protectorate in 19... Uh, 19, oh, I'm sorry, my, my dates are a bit fuzzy. Let's say 1904, 1905. And Pepe, I used, I called him Pepe, uh, was the right-hand man that, that uh, kept liaison between the French, uh, Lyoté, and the Berber tribes because he could speak their language. So here he is on horseback, galloping through the Berber tribes. I don't know why in the Atlas Mountains, he was a friend of the Glawi. The Glawi was the king of the Berber. So my grandmother married this brilliant young man who took her to Morocco. And for her, it was not heaven. Morocco and Marrakesh in 1923. I mean, Marrakesh is very exotic these days. It's no longer the Marrakesh that I knew. But um, in 1923, my grandmother thought she was among the barbarians. So they lived in the Medina, in the old city, in a riyad, in a mansion, and uh, my grandmother was not quite happy. So eventually they migrated to Casablanca because among the French colonialists, you know, this is all colonial times, you want to spend your summers in France. It was automat automatic. You, you, the, the Grand Vacances, June, July, August, puff, you all went to France. And so she did. And my mother was born in Chalon en Champagne. This my mother and one of her cousins in a park which still exists. It's called Le Jard, J-A-R-D. And I can't wait to see the real thing. This is a photo, it's a background, it's not the real thing, but the Jard still exists. And in 1939, my mother, her sister and her cousin, who has a quite an interesting history because she hid, she was hidden from the Germans by one of her neighbors. She hid in a wine cask. You read those stories and you don't believe it. She did, and she escaped by bicycle. So she escaped the Nazis. Um, so this is 1939, the last summer that my mother would spend in France with her grandparents. She was very, very fond of Blanche. Uh, and in Morocco, of course, because of my grandfather's position, then they would be invited in the, by the tr tribes in the Atlas Mountains. And here, I think this is my, yeah, it's not, I think, my aunt and my mother is right here and my grandmother. So you see, it, it, even among the French of the time, the ones who were living in colonial countries like Morocco, they were like from the moon. It was, you live in Morocco? And it's really among his people. But that's what it was. And my at Easter time, they would be invited, my mother, to this Glawi's residence, which is really high up in the Atlas Mountains, and now I think is an Airbnb or something, but um, to the Kasbah of Telwet outside Marrakesh, about two hours up in the mountains. And 
they were escorted. Now, I am often asked, well, I mean, you may wonder why my name is Kitty Morse, why I'm in Casablanca, and why I claim to be British. Well, I do. I have a British passport. <laughs> I have dual nationality, but I'm a very proud American. I have to tell you, America is the top. But my father grew up in a very small village in, Morocco, in, uh, in England, and he lied about his age, and he joined the Royal Air Force, the RAF. And they needed uh, bodies and they sent him to Morocco in 1942, right before Operation Torch, which is when the liberation of Europe started, because the liberation of Europe started in Casablanca with the American landings. And the Americans walked through Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, and they, they went up to Sicily and Italy. And then they, you know, they, in a way, faked up the Germans. It was a brilliant operation. But my father was a Spitfire mechanic. So he was sent, he was uh, not an officer, but he was sent to Casablanca where there was a big Air, uh, Air Force base, uh, Royal Air Force, and they repaired Spitfires that had been damaged at the war front. And to have them repaired, they would send them to Morocco and they would be fixed. And then they were sent back to the war. It's very interesting, actually. There's a lot of, I did a lot of research on it. It's very difficult to find any details about this, but. Uh, my, my father was stationed in the center of Casablanca for, you know, three or four years. And uh, at the time the Americans landed, uh, the president, Roosevelt and Eisenhower, sent, if you would, uh, these flyers to the people they were going to uh, occupy, quote unquote. Uh, and um, these flyers were thrown out of airplanes. So my mother picked this up on the street in Casablanca. And I absolutely think this is fascinating. Uh, what uh, Roosevelt or Eisenhower was saying is, don't fight us. We come to liberate. We come as friends. We are very, very friendly. Uh, and we want to be friends with the Moroccans. And as an aside, Morocco has always been a friend, if you would, of the United States. It was the first country in the world to recognize the independence of the newly formed United States in 1789. And so you can be sure that when anything political to this day happens in North Africa, on the Middle East, everything starts and is gathered in Morocco. So there's a big embassy in Rabat and many consuls, but it's very, very interesting. So anyway, this is in French and the back is in Arabic. And so my mother picked this up in the street. Now, as for my father, he spent two or three years in Casablanca and he, 1945, he arrived in 42, uh, member of the Royal Air Force. My father was an impresario. He not only repaired airplanes, he loved to throw parties. And I, th I think that's why I started my catering business and my touring business. <laughs> he ended up being the leading tour operator in Morocco with his company, Olive Branch Tours. So here we are, the Royal Air Force is leaving and they're sending out this, um, his invitation, and that was also in the suitcase. By kind permission of the commanding officer. I love it. Okay, my mom, me, and my brother. So I was born in 47, and my brother was born in uh, 49 in Casablanca, as British citizens, of course. <laughs> this painting represents the house where my mother was born, and it was painted, I found that in the suitcase on the back by a young man in First World War who was killed in the war. Uh, so my mother was born in this room, but the house was destroyed 
um, in the First World War. Now, the area I'm talking about is here, Chalon-sur-Marne, you see, Strasbourg, Nancy, Epinal. Uh, many of you have probably been there, but anyway, Chalon-sur-Marne is now Chalon-en-Champagne, and it's part of a region now called Le Grand Est. So in my book, I agonize, what do I call this area? What do I call it? So I go, you know, it's Le Grand Est. Um, and Chalon Champagne, I explain why it's Chalon Champagne. So this is the country was split in half in World War II, the occupied zone and the unoccupied zone. And in my grandfather, great grandfather's journal, I find um, a whole episode because the, I have translated his journal into English and it is also in the book along with the recipes. Uh, but there's a whole episode on how his son-in-law or the, his daughter's uh, husband goes from the, from the occupied to the unoccupied because he was a notary public and he wanted to make sure to save the documents that he had in his care as a notary. So he drove from Chalon to, to Perpignan, Carcassonne, Montpellier, which is where, right here, oops, right here, where my great-grandfather came from and took his documents with him and then he came back to the occupied zone. Oh, it's unbelievable. Uh, one page from my grand, great grandfather's journal. You see the writing, even for me, I mean, I can read the French and I can write it, but it's very, very difficult to read because the page is very small and they lacked paper. So he packed each page with all sorts. I mean, that's what I had. But, but another surprise from my mother, she never told me this, in 1982, she had transcribed all the journal and typed it up. I mean, she must have spent months doing it. it she didn't tell anybody. So I found this, this treasured document because I didn't have to decipher this every, every word. It was already typed up in French. Huh? So this is about uh, Decidément, really, the, the month is, is starting badly. Um, in what concerns us, the radio this morning is trying to enlighten the character. Uh, it, it talks about anti-Semitism because the, the radio was, was Nazi, Nazi uh, backed. And so they had a, he talking about anti-Semitism, what they're going to do with the Jews. I mean, you, you will read it in my book. I'm not going to go into it. But see, 30 juillet, 30 of July, 31 July, 1st of July. Um, what's going to happen to us? What will this month bring? What are we? What does the twelfth month of the war reserve for us? It starts with good weather. We are hoping for less somber days. You will find that in the book. Thirty-one July. Nothing of importance that interests us. So this is what I was. Uh, studying and and, uh, and imbibing. I, I, my brain was absolutely exploding. Um, one, of course, I also have my great grandfather's uh, military papers. I have his his um, CV, how he participated in so many battles and so many wars. And during World War One, he went from one hospital to the other because they needed him everywhere. I'm sure there were not many army surgeons. And so he went from hospital number one, number two, number three, to number 12. So this is um, what they would give, um, sort of his um, 
how do you say uh, retirement papers here he is being um, given the Legion d'honneur and this is what they would pay him for 1937 so he got it twice the Legion d'honneur most uh, people men and women who got the Legion d'honneur got it posthumously but he got it twice on the field of battle I'm including this because this is a, a Nazi poster eh, that is self-explanatory. The, the tentacles are over Europe. This I know means something about um, Austria, but this, the, the Nazis had several posters like this, especially one that covers Churchill and the United Kingdom, uh, you know, with tentacles saying that Churchill and the rest are taking over Europe. It's quite ghastly. The postcards that you see here are Nazi sanctioned. So Levin et Marc is kind of interesting. My great-grandparents were known as Prosper and Blanche Lévy, but Blanche's maiden name was Némarque. So they put Lévy and Némarque together because in the town of Chalon and in Alsace itself, there was the, the largest population of Jews in, uh, in France, which I didn't know until I <laughs> read about it. And in Chalon-sur-Marne, there were many levies. And one custom at the time of that region, only of that region, was to tack on the name of the of the occupation to the last name, like Levy. Neymarque is not one. But uh, they had Levy Gâteau, Levy Gâteau, Levy Cake for the pastry guy, uh, Levy Boucher, Levy Butcher for the butcher, uh, Levy... Um, for Prosper ended up being Levy Docteur, so that people knew which Levy they were talking about. I just, I love that story because it's true and I researched it and it is a, a um, custom of Nancy, Nancy and that, so that region. But Neymarc, so they changed their address, Madame Darmont, Rue de Commercy, is where I grew up, around the corner from Rue de Commercy in the center of Casablanca. This Nazi postcard tells you, be careful. If you do not follow these rules, we will not send your postcard. It has to be uniquely on familiar, on family order, only that. So here we are, 2141, we are in good health. Tired is crossed out. We are not sick or hurt. We are not killed. We are not prisoners, blah, 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 blah. blah. And so la famille va bien, the family is fine. Provisions, we want provisions. So my great-grandfather adds, we would, we loved your postcards from Tangier. We speak, speak a lot about you. We'd love to have your news. And that's it. If they had said other things, it would not have been said. Not that they would have been sent anyway, but some did go through. This one is sort of touching because he says, um, you know, we hear from our friends that have family in Morocco that they can get dried fruit, conserves, rice, pasta, and some. If it's possible, we would love to get some of those. So I hope they did, because many of the postcards, as you will read in the, in the journal, didn't go through, and they either waited three months for an answer, or they got no answer at all. Now, the other treasure I found, of course, were the recipes. The little booklet, same little notebook, quatrième trimestre, 1920, but, you know, who knows when it was uh, uh, really written? 
and I opened it up to find my great grandfather's recipes. And I honestly, I was already on the floor, but I fell on the floor. And I'm thinking, I don't, because I didn't have the idea of a book came, and I thought, do I really want to do this at my age? I've done 10. You know, writing a cookbook is very, very difficult. And I open it up and I find recipes that my own grandmother made and my mother made some of them. So I was familiar with them, but I didn't know where they came from. Et voilà, trimestre. So uh, Owen and I created a collage. Th these are the real recipes. We just made a collage of them. Uh, the most traditional. Kaluga, I'll tell you about Kaluga. Cruchade, Clafouti, you know, probably the Bidiet Carnaval. Carnaval is right now. Uh, so we created this, but um, I have the real thing. This is what the booklet looks like. Chocolate truffles, visitanding, and look at this. Um, the writing is just so beautiful, but it's French style. You know, you put a little bit of this and you put a little bit of that and you maybe you use half an eggshell and maybe, well, maybe you will cook it for 40 minutes, but if you give it five minutes more, I mean, I tell you, this was a year and a half's work. So truffe au chocolat, chocolate truffles, my mother made, but she got the recipe from her mother who got the recipe from her mother. So truffe au chocolat, we have. Crème pâtissière, you all know. Pudding au pain, which is a bread pudding. Et voilà le pudding au pain. With veuve cricot from Champagne. These pictures my husband took, they're all in the book. Book is hardcover and illustrated. Cruchade, I found that quite interesting. It's made with cornmeal. Cornmeal, I call them cornmeal coins. Very easy to make. You just fry them in <clears throat> deep in, uh, you know, quite a bit of oil and then drain them and then you you dip them in honey or spoon honey over it. You have to eat them when they're very warm, otherwise they become a bit tough, but they're very good. It's a great goûter. Uh, I, if you don't know the word goûter, um, in France, when you go to, or in Morocco, or in French-speaking countries, you come home from school at four or five in the afternoon. It's a long day, at least it used to be. And so there's always a goûter, like a four o'clock, five o'clock, Mm, little break when you come home from school and you often would have cruchade or especially this one which actually I did not like spice cake pendy piece is not my favorite thing but <laughs> I did make pendy piece I tested it she says you know just mix the honey with the water and and add some bicarbonate um, and some anise seed and then the flour well I had to figure that one out but voila le pain d'épices, and uh, I serve it with marmalade, which Blanche also made, and I made my own marmalade with pain d'épices. Crêpe, you all know crêpe, so this is Blanche's recipe for crêpe, 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 which we made into crêpe, stuffed with, uh, or filled, I should say, um, chestnut puree, homemade from fresh chestnuts, chocolate ganache, and whipped cream. It is a very nice dessert. <laughs> Takes a long time, but it's worth it. Clafouti. I love clafouti. I've, I've made clafouti all my life. My grandmother showed me how to make clafouti, and so she got it from Blanche. Clafouti with cherries. Cherries is the traditional fruit of Alsace because they make a liqueur from it. Kirsch. So that's why they're also on my book cover, the cherries. 
Um, this is fun, Beignet Carnaval, a carnaval season in the region of Champagne-Ardenne. You go from one house to the next and you sample every housewife's beignet. So beignet, uh, you know, uh, voilà, beignet, you get those in New Orleans. Same thing, the beignet. Which I serve with, I think, honey. I think it's honey or it's my strawberry jam, but the recipe is in the book. Now, Kaluga is intriguing. I did not, I have never seen the word Kaluga. I had never had that cake. What was interesting with my, grand, my grandmother's, uh, my great grandmother's recipes, she used a lot of almond flour, which I really had not used up to, up to now. Uh, so it was interesting to see how almond flour worked in these cakes and it's much lighter. Of course, it's gluten-free. So that was great. And I discovered when I hit Kaluga that my great-grandmother in her book, in her little notebook, had about 15 chocolate cakes. So I channeled her and I said, Blanche, I am not making 15 chocolate cakes. <laughs> I'm going to pick Kaluga. Never heard of it. And so to find out the history, I sent out little feelers everywhere. And uh, my colleague and friend, Greg Patton, uh, the chocolate, the um, baking wizard is his website. Maybe you know Greg, he's charming. He lives now in Hawaii, uh, sent out, a did some research for me and told me, well, Kaluga, because it's spelled Kaluga like this with a T or without a T, or it's just a very strange word. It's not French. So he found out, he thinks that it derives from a cake that is made on the island of Capri. It is the, what it is, it's a flourless chocolate cake. I recommend you try it and you make it the night, the day ahead so that it has a, it has a chance to, to um, hack itself down. It's very dense. And you know what? This week, I think on the internet somewhere, there's a food blogger who does, said, oh, Yes, and you must leave it overnight so that it packs down. It was kind of a weird thing. That chocolate cake, not Kaluga. I've not seen Kaluga mentioned on an American site. So I recommend you try it. It's very easy to make and it's very good. Voila. And I serve it in a pool of uh, custard. Mm, yeah. Mousse au kirsch. Kirsch, you see, is a traditional alcohol of Alsace. Uh, what's interesting for me is that it is the only book the only recipe in my book that is truly kosher. My, as I told you, my great grandparents were not <coughs> were secular Jews, and so in Champagne-Ardenne they love their sausages because it's near uh, Germany, and one of the traditional dishes is sauerkraut. So there's a lot of pork and little lardons, little bacon bits. So I'm just my great grandparents with a grandfather or father being a butcher, they had access to all these things. But the mousse kirsch is very light. There's a rice pudding underneath from Blanche, very light, and then a, a um, sort of an egg mousse cream. And the reason it's yellow, I was using, I was using uh, beautiful eggs from a farm and it turned out to be, the yolks were gorgeous. So there you go. Now this is an interesting one. Excuse me, I have to turn off my phone. Oh. Sorry for the phone. So Pignon, the title of this is Pignon. The direct translation of Pignon is nuns farts. I'm sorry, F-A-R-T-S. Yes, and it's a historical recipe that dates back to the 1600s. Apparently a young nun was cooking in some convent. 
she made a mistake. She dropped some patashu, some um, cream puff dough in oil, and she got nuns farts. And on my last talk, people couldn't believe it. They said, what? Nuns? Yeah, a pit nun. Everybody in France knows what a pit nun is, and this is what it is. It's a fried puff. Very, very good, sprinkled with sugar, and again, always honey. And another traditional French beverage is uh, lemon verbena tea. So the cookies are also Alsatian, because Alsace and Strasbourg are very well known for their cookies because they're so close to Germany, of course. And these are called bredeles, B-R-E-D-E-L-E, -E -E, in that region. And they have hundreds and hundreds of Christmas cookies. Oh, this is another recipe you have to try. This is Blanche's carrot cake. It's very, very dense. Tony's made it. <laughs> and she said it reminds her of her grandmother's carrot cake. So um, what can I tell you? There's also rice flour in it. It's lots of carrots, but it's much denser than ours. And of course, the French don't do icing. There's no icing, but there is creme fraiche whipped cream and uh, candied orange peel. And I also recommend you make it. The, the recipe is quite large and it keeps for days. It's very, very nice. Oh, the croquant rouge, French wedding cake. Now I could tell you this was a nightmare of a recipe to test and to make, but we did. It took two weeks to develop, to test, to fill, to elaborate, to, um, to picture, to take, to photograph because every little puff is filled with creme pâtissière. And then you make caramel, and then you make this cage of caramel. But my mother made one of those for my wedding, a croque-en-bouche or a pièce montée. Voilà the croque-en-bouche for the book. And voila the croque-en-bouche that my mother made for her granddaughter who came to visit us in California and passed the tradition down. And so Clara, who is a Canadian now mother of four boys, made croque-en-bouche. This is her son who's using my grandmother's uh, egg beater in the kitchen. So the tradition goes on. To the savories, rabbit stew, civet lapin or Riesling. To me, this is an important recipe in the book because my great grandfather mentions it. They were being bombed in Chalon-sur-Marne. So they had to go to a little village with Rosière or Saline where his daughter lived and where they had friends who had a hiding place. It was a, um, a chalk tunnel, you know, the same tunnel that you keep wine and champagne in. It's, it riddles Champagne, Strasbourg, Reims. They're filled with these, um, I'm sorry, I forget the word, but anyway, these tunnels. And so people use them as shelters. And so he goes to visit these two Granderie sisters. And I'm hoping that I can find a trace of them when I go there or their descendants. And he says, in between bouts of bombings and going down in the tunnel, we came up and we ate civet de lapin at the Granderie, and it was very, very good. So Riesling is a Alsatian, Alsatian wine, and um, so are the, the mushrooms, yeah, the, the morel. You go and pick the morels in the mountain or in the hills around them. A meat pie, a tourte Alsatian, is filled with marinated bits of beef and pork. And, um, covered with a uh, very nice pastry crust. This is traditional, the tourte, a, a potato casserole, which is unique to um, 
Alsace also, layers of potato, layers of marinated meat, it's always marinated meat, in wine there's alvino everything, the, the fact, there's wine everywhere, and uh, it's cooked in, I have used here a romoltoff, and in Alsace they have a special dish, a special implement for this, but it's actually very nice, it serves a crowd, recommended. An Alsatian pizza, a flamme and funny enough, this year or these past few months, I keep seeing flamme come up on various food sites. It's a very simple pizza crust and uh, caramelized onions and bits of lardon of bacon and, and crème fraîche over the top. That makes it Alsatian. Very easy, very good. My uh, cabbage strudel in filo dough, red cabbage Alsatian style with little bits of lardon in it. and. Uh, my grandmother used to make this, so this is her Alsatian cabbage strudel. The salad uh, and endive, a Belgian endive, is a tradition in French homes on New Year's Eve and Christmas Eve. And so I grew up with salade d'endive every Christmas Eve, every New Year's Eve. We had salade d'endive and uh, with nuts, with walnuts and little bits of lardot, of course, and blue cheese. It's very pretty and it's very good. A sort of a schnitzel. This is a, a pork chop. No, I'm sorry. This is actually, I made it with turkey. I just made an exception. With cherries and red cabbage, uh, makes for a very nice entree. My husband here is styling one of these, uh, these are a flan, a flan of rice flour. Uh, my husband was a brilliant photographer. He loved doing it and he really had a nose for doing it. So we spent probably a day looking for the background, the right plate, the right color that would complement <coughs> each other. And he took most of his pictures outside. We used natural light. And at one point he thought, well, our living room is very bright. And so here we're using the living room as a background. Now, more brittle almond cookies, which actually reminded me of Moroccan cookies. In Morocco, we make the same kind of cookies, but in Alsace, so they do too. The Kugelhof is a typical Alsatian brioche. Now, this is an adventure because we wanted to, to um, test and represent the recipes as Blanche um, told us to, you know, in her book. So actually this we needed by hand and it needs to rise three times and off we went on the floor and, you know, I have actually a Moroccan implement called the gsa because in Morocco you make your bread every day and you take it to the bread oven. So I thought, okay, Blanche, yeah, from Morocco to Vista, California. So we were kneading this baby for hours and it rises. It's very dense, easy to make. The recipes can be somewhat long in that book, but that's all I could do. Uh, but it worked out really well. I love this one, Zimet Kuchen. I don't say it well, but I think Zimtkuchen means cinnamon in German. It's a wonderful coffee cake, very dense, but kind of a light feel, mouth feel. And those indentations on the top I made with a champagne cork. You make indentations and then you fill the indentations with creme fraiche. Brilliant. And it stays fresh for several days. Now the bûche is a tradition in our family. It's always been a tradition. I got the recipe from my grandmother. I did not know that she got it from her mother. And so we always make bûche at Christmas time. And if you follow the recipe, it has been tested and made so many times for the American kitchen. 
you too should be able to make a bûche de Noël. My husband is uh, spreading the ganache over the bûche. Blanche also made um, jams and preserves. So this is strawberry and uh, cherry. Really good. Okay, so I'm going to end on that one as a dessert. But I wanted to, um, I got wonderful blurbs from various well-known writers about the book. Um, and Faye Levy <clears throat> wrote me another uh, wonderful book. She said, I cannot, I couldn't put the book down. Joan Nason, you probably know Joan, who wrote, she's the queen of Jewish cooking in the United States. And I had a nice chat with her. And she really liked the book. Uh, Alec Lobrano writes for uh, Vanity Fair, and he was very kind. Bittersweet is a fascinating and harrowing account of the lives and worlds that were lost and disrupted in one French family during the wars and political conventions of the 20th century. Yeah, that's true. So I'm going to leave this up for a minute and tell you more because this is how you can order. I don't have the books yet. They're coming from China, but if you would like to pre-order you can they're listed up on amazon as pre-order or you can <clears throat> excuse me you can um contact me directly if you would like a signed copy the amazon copies will not be signed but if you want a signed copy you can go through my website and uh you can pay by paypal if you would like um, let me tell you a little bit about minty and minarets my first memoir it did win a gourmand world award and my first this memoir is about a house that my father willed me 90 kilometers south of Casablanca in a fortified town that dates back to the Phoenicians um, called Azemur. And we own a house right here in the front called, it's a Riyadh, it's a Moorish mansion, it's a local landmark. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it's still there, but I don't go there very often anymore. Azemur in 1908, this is our house which was eventually destroyed in 1909 by French frigates who came up the river. It's one of Morocco's main river called the Umeribia, the mother of spring, because the king and his brother were at war, were not getting along at the time. And the king asked the French to come and help him put his brother down because his brother was too friendly with the Berbers. So they bombed Darzitoun. And we ended up with a ruin which my father took 20 years to reconstruct and which is now featured in many movies actually um, and I used to take groups to Morocco and cook at Darzitoun. Our Portuguese fountain is probably 300 years old and you see here a uh, grinding grinder and I just wanted to show you my husband one more time this is the day I received my two sample copies and so it's for him and voila this is the end. Thank you for listening. I have a couple of anecdotes um, that I would like to add, if I may, regarding the French side of the family. Obviously, Annie, my grandmother's sister, was e e evaded. Uh, evaded the Germans by um, seeking refuge with a a neighbor, I think I told you, who hid her in a wine barrel. And then when she, it was safe enough to go out, they pretended that she would, she would, she was uh, drowned in a lake. And so she, 
they made footsteps in the snow to a little lake, to a pond, to make the Germans believe that she had drowned. And then one of the neighbors in Chalon took her by bicycle to Nancy, where she hid until the end of the war in one of those tunnels I told you about. Uh, so it was harrowing. She disappeared after the war. She didn't want anything to do with the family anymore. So she apparently lived in Switzerland. So I have no contact with any of the descendants um, of that time. Yeah, so uh, anyway, I'd be happy to answer questions. Okay, uh, Kitty, thank yes. you so much. Uh, I just want to mention something. And uh, Tony, uh, Antonia Allegra, uh, at her outstanding conference that she'd give each year for food writers at the Greenbrier, uh, brought in Cara da Silva, uh, oh, the yes. noted late, uh, wonderful uh, food mm. writer who wrote this astounding book in memory's kitchen yes about the uh in a sense it, yours reminds me a tiny bit of of that uh that uh the women who lived in Teresin, uh, Teresin, yes. pardon me yes yes no i am familiar with the book i was fascinated with her book in fact i was in touch with her until uh gosh very very i mean close to when she died. I didn't realize she had passed away until a few weeks ago. No, right. her book is brilliant, In Memory's Kitchen. It's a different take on it because she she spoke and the women spoke and she relates what the, you know, what the women of the camp said. Yeah, it's a brilliant book. Yeah, it was the, a book about, uh, they actually didn't have real recipes. They, they for, to keep their spirits alive, they mm. wrote down the recipes from memory and uh, it was one of the most powerful talks I've ever seen about uh, Holocaust Jewish food memories. Uh, and uh, everybody in the room was sobbing at, at Tony's conference. I so uh, it, <laughs> as you're talking, it reminded me a little bit of, of Cara's wonderful book. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, we are open for questions. We ask that you put your questions in chat and Kathy will read them. Uh, go over them and and read them and uh, del deliver your the questions to you. So, uh, okay, you. Kathy, take it away. I thought you were going to ask more questions, Scott. I actually uh, she answered so many. Uh, no, I'll I'll let the the audience dive in. Okay, well, it maybe it's not so much a question but a statement. But um, Jeffrey said that the paternal side of his family is from Ilkirch Gravenstaden. Grafenstaden, which is now a southwest suburb of Strasbourg. Huh. Well, that's what happened. Yes, yeah, like Hagenau. Hagenau is, uh, was French at one time and then German. Yes, when you live on the border, <laughs> you don't know what language to speak. Oh, and there was some discussion back and forth about the uh, announcement uh, that was with Eisenhower and a picture of, of uh, FDR. Mm. And it was, um, the bottom was the flyer was a, a identified as FDR as president and co-signed by Eisenhower. So right. there you go. Thank you. Um, I, I, there's more statements than questions. <laughs> uh, Peggy Wolf here. Uh, thank you, Kitty, for producing such a fabulous book and for connecting me to Danielle in Morocco, your Jewish oh, co-author. Yeah, of the other book, yes. The Scent of Orange Blossoms, yes. It's a, also a family story. Her family and my family, yeah. 
Ah, and cabbage strudel. Somebody didn't know of cabbage strudel. They knew of apple strudel. So this was something new for them. Yeah, that's right. It's it's. I like savory things. So. Ah, <laughs> uh, question. Uh, let me see. I realized that everyone had to make difficult decisions during the war and Holocaust. I am somewhat surprised that you said. I think it was your grandfather who moved from occupied area to an unoccupied area and then back to the occupied area. Yes, area. yes. Wasn't yes. that taking a major risk? It was. It was. Um, he drove down with his son to the unoccupied zone, left his son there, and then came back. Yes, it was risky, but they could do that if they wanted to. They came back to the risky area. And I forgot to tell you also, um, my great-grandfather, as I said, was secular. And one day the Germans wanted every Jew in town to register with them. And so he dutifully went to the German registrar's office and the German, uh, the Nazi uh, in charge, looked through the list of the, rabbi, the rabbi's lists. And he looked at my great-grandfather and said, well, your name is not on the list. And my great-grandfather said, well, I'm not surprised because I'm, I'm not part of any uh, synagogue or any Jewish organization, but I will not deny my origins. And he gave them his name. Do you consider yourself Jewish? You know, I'm, uh, yes and no. I mean, I, I say I'm a my Yes, I am. But I wasn't brought up in because my father was an Anglican. So in Morocco, I grew up, so to speak, as an Anglican because there's a very sweet little Protestant church that Patton attended during the war. And that's where my father, <laughs> my father worshipped. And so we went at one time. But I, my great-grandparents, the Algerians, the Sephardic ones, also lived in Casablanca, and we went to celebrate Passover with them. And we also celebrated, you know, Ramadan. I mean, so that's my background. What can I tell you? Yes, I am Jewish. Yes, I am. On the other, it's no other hand, but I'm also all sorts of other things. <laughs> uh, what a treasure the recipes are. Can you please talk more about how you chose the recipes you tested and the testing process? Oh, my, 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 yes. Well, first of all, I picked recipes that I, that appealed to my palate. Um, I also picked recipes that were not too complicated because some of them can go on and on and very complicated. I mean, imagine the kitchen in, you know, in the 1920s or the 19s, it's quite different. Uh, the stoves, everything was different. The ingredients were different. So I was partial to recipes that resonated. And I also wanted recipes that would appeal to an American kitchen. Uh, I say American because I, I would love for my book to be translated into French. I will not do it, but um, I wanted something that would also appeal to an American cook and not put the person off. Because from my experience with other books, you have to keep it simple and appetizing, but simple. Because if you have, as somebody at Bon Appetit once told me, more than nine ingredients, people want to read the recipe. And they're like, nine ingredients for me is all spices. You know, I need more than that. And uh, the testing process was making it over and over again until I got the, the flavors, because I'm familiar with the French flavors. You know, I grew up with French cuisine. I understand it. And um, 
it had to attain that level of, uh, of flavor for my palate. <clears throat> and then it was a question of also transcribing grams and milliliters into cups, tablespoons. It was very difficult. But, uh, you know, we managed and the recipes work. I can tell you that they do. And then you test and you retest until you can imagine somebody else but you doing it. And I have a very simple kitchen. I use no complicated implements. Uh, people who know me here who are watching from California, my kitchen is basically a galley. I do not have a gorgeous kitchen. So, but that's good because that forces me to cook for the home cook. And that's how it worked. Are there any recipes that were used during the war, uh, perhaps recipes that would reflect the lack of food? You know, this is a very good question. I, I sort of battled with that. But first of all, Blanche, from my readings and from what I found in the book, was a very a brilliant hostess and an excellent cook. So there's really nothing in there that I would say, you know, is made with ersatz coffee. I mean, they do talk, my grandfather, sorry, I keep saying that, my great-grandfather in his journal talks about they're lacking coffee. So they're using um, an ersatz kind of coffee, the chicory, and, you know, they don't like it. And uh, the croissant, they couldn't find anymore. And then in the end, the Germans forbade them to go to pastry stores and the bread was lacking. But her recipes were more upscale, I think, and she she recorded them, I, I believe, I'm not sure, but I'm sure she recorded them for her daughters. And I think she wanted to record the best. And so there's nothing like, you know, using potato flour or there's just a lack of. If they don't have the strawberries stopped, the green beans stopped, the potatoes stopped, because what happened during <clears throat> World War I is that there were no seeds. So they couldn't plant potatoes. And so millions and millions of farmers went under. It, it was just tragic. The agriculture was, uh, you know, was, was gone for a long time because everybody was going to war. So, but Blanche, the recipes, I, when you, you see what I showed you, they were probably the best that she can produce at the time. And probably not at the heart of the war, I would say. Uh Oh, somebody who has this experience herself, I'm sure. Who had the pleasure of eating your test recipes? Oh, anybody who came in the house. I tell you, after you've made it three times, I couldn't even look at it. But I hate to throw away food. I can't bear it. Some of them, when they didn't work out, they went right in the trash and it killed me. Um, but the quantities are based basically maybe four to six, sometimes two. So I, so my husband and I ate them <laughs> and whoever came once, once I had a, a cake that I was tired of. And so we have an area here where the workers gather and you can pick them up and they can work for, you know, day workers. I took them to there. They were very pleased. So <laughs> nothing went to waste. <laughs> Kitty, do you have any idea why your mother decided to translate and save those amazing journals, but never told you about them? Not translate, transcribe. Transcribe. Yeah, okay. I, I translated. She, I had the French transcription. Um, I have an inkling. The subject of the war and her grandparents 
was extremely painful to her. And we knew from a young age, you don't bring up the subject. You do not bring it up. And I, and I found out since then that it's very common among Holocaust descendants. It's so painful. And she was so terribly close to her grandmother. And I, you know, I knew she talked about Blanche. She named me after Blanche, but I, I knew I'd better not go there. And she never offered. Uh, and an interesting side, sideline is my mother had a computer and she had a password. And one day I came into her room and I saw she had this great name. Her password was Fanelli. Fanelli is a very unusual woman's name in France. And I said, oh, Mama, why did you come in with Fanelli? Oh, she says it's somebody I once knew. Well, Fanelli was a, a daughter, a third daughter of my grandmother who died in infancy. But my mother never told me that. I found that out in the journal. It was too painful to talk about. I could not talk about it with my mother and my grandmother. There's <coughs> another sideline, this one from Morocco. The, the little suitcase that I have, I call La Petite Valise. Nobody knows where it comes from. It arrived one day, packed, wrapped in butcher paper at my grandparents' door in Casablanca with no return address. And my grandfather happened to be home at the time and somehow he, he got that the petite valise and he kept it secret from my grandmother for three months because of course she was already suffering um, knowing that her parents had died, her sister had died, her cousins had died. And he would tell me later that my grandmother who eventually lived in Milwaukee, by the way, she emigrated. Um, her hair turned white overnight. So I also knew that with my grandmother, you did not bring up the subject. She couldn't. She became a terrible asthmatic sort of immediately. And she died from an asthma attack. And so, you know, she, she had this valise that my grandfather had and kept for three months. He called, he called the family doctor who said, uh, you know, don't tell her right now, just hang on to it. And at the end of three months, my grandfather writes because he also wrote a memoir. And he says, I had to show her. And it was, that was, my grandma's life was practically over. And in 1957, they too emigrated to Milwaukee because it was the war in, of independence in Morocco. So they were, you know, talk about wandering Jews. That's my family <laughs> in Morocco and in France. Um, so they had to leave Morocco for political reasons because my grandfather was very visible as a, um, you know, a French uh, diplomat. Came to Milwaukee because of my aunt and uh, she died in Milwaukee. So when I was in Milwaukee, I would have, I would see my grandmother every couple of days. And, uh, but never ever mention France or Blanche or I just didn't, and they didn't volunteer. They didn't volunteer. It, and I understand, as I was saying uh, recently, it's quite common among Holocaust, not only survivors, but descendants. And what I find interesting is that my age, my generation, which is three or four times removed, we're all writing these things. We want, this is for me, I have to tell the world that these people existed. They disappeared for what reason? You know, I know how she ended up at Auschwitz. They had a life, they, had, they were known, it, it, that, that, that uh, C-SPAN show really, really hit me hard. You just have 
to keep them alive, you do not want to be indifferent. And so I decided I didn't want to be indifferent. Yeah, it's the story of a family torn apart because in Morocco, I had a whole Sephardic family. My grandfather, my grandmother's husband, uh, Pepe. Uh, so there's a whole story there with the, the Sephardic Jews from Algeria. And he married this Ashkenazi Jew, very educated from France. It was, you know, it was not a marriage made in heaven because the cultures were so different. <laughs> but they were both educated and they both ended up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My grandfather became a professor and my their daughter was also a professor. Anyway, sorry for going on and on like this. I'm sorry. Shut me up. You have to shut me up. I told you, Cassie, you have to shut me up. <laughs> I, I don't think anybody wishes to shut you up. If anything, <laughs> when you were emotional at the beginning, it was like a bad moment to be on Zoom. Oh, yeah. Everybody would wanted to embrace you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. I think this is where we finish. Scott, I'm sure you have final words. Well, Kitty, um, there, there's when you said about you rewriting the book, I remember uh, that wonderful uh, agent and publicist, uh, Lisa Eckes, uh, mm -hmm. the, the premier cookbook mm -hmm. publicist and agent in the nation probably said to me one time, you don't write a book, a cookbook, because you want to do it. You write That's it because right. you have to do it. <laughs> totally. So yes. thank you for, for writing this book. And thank you so much for this savory and poignant slice of your life that, that you put down here. So uh, uh, are, are you are, at this point in your life, do you intend to write any other books? Ah, I, if, my, if my husband were here, he would cut my head off. <laughs> no. <Okay. laughs> but who knows? Something else may just fall in my this this is a gift this is a gift this book i yes. have to do something with this gift and, if and i find another gift i don't know but for now i'm gonna say no <laughs> you, thank you, you you've you've given us your gift and we appreciate that and again if anybody wants to order the book uh also you can look up uh our program on our website and on the program notice uh tells you how to order the book too so again thank you and uh, if you ever write a book again, you know where we live. And if you don't, <laughs> if we don't, you've 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 done your duty. So thank, thank you so you. much. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you. You want please? I hope I come to Chicago one of the because I'm going to Milwaukee. Actually, well, I will one day because I want to take my husband's ashes back to Milwaukee. So I will be passing through Chicago, Scott. <laughs> yeah, you'll be in the neighborhood, and you know I where will. I live. So let's I let's will. get together. I miss you. Take care. Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you for listening. Being patient. Bye-bye. Good, Good night, Tony, too. It's good and Tony. You.